Well, it's Christmas time, and the word Christmas probably fills our minds with lots of different emotions and memories. Many of us probably instantly remember precious times with relatives, some of whom are long departed. Or we remember fun and feasting and family, and if you're like me, football. Perhaps you remember gifts that you've given or received. Christmas is a very happy season for many people. But some of us have a different emotional response to Christmas. Christmas can be a hard and painful time for those who are lonely or for those who uh, have bad memories associated with this season. This Christmas in particular will prove very painful for many people in our society who have endured loss over the last year or who have loved ones who are sitting alone in a hospital. Christmas is an emotionally loaded time. And what I want to say to you today is wherever you are at this Christmas, I want you to know there is reason to rejoice. And after the miserable year we've had in 2020, that's great news. We need cause to rejoice. We need cause to celebrate. Andy Williams once saying, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Friends, we need some wonder right now. And today as we open God's Word together, my prayer is that we're going to see a lot of wonder. We're going to see reasons to rejoice and celebrate, reasons that are true no matter whether you're by yourself on December 25th, or if you're going to have a virtual Christmas, or if you're going to have the whole gang over. Because what we're going to see today is Christmas is not about presents, or food, or decorating, or social gatherings. Christmas is about an invitation to remember what happened 2,025 years ago in Bethlehem to remember the wondrous birth of a miraculous child, the birth of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the birth of the King of Kings who will reign forever and ever, the birth of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today as we continue our study in the Gospel according to Matthew, which we started last week. Today our passage is going to be Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And if you need it, the passage is printed on the back of the bulletin, or if you have a Bible, I would... I commend you to uh, turn there in your uh, Bible. In today's passage, we're going to learn about the miraculous conception and birth of Jesus, which were prophetically foretold centuries in advance. We're going to learn about the significance of Jesus' miraculous birth. And more than that, we're going to learn about the significance of Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus calls upon us to do. So that's where we're going this morning, and we're going to see this today across three points. First, we're going to see a prophecy of divine deliverance is given. Second, we're going to see that that prophecy is scandalously fulfilled. And third, we're going to see that this prophecy and its fulfillment call us to respond with faith in Jesus. Let's start with our first point, in which we see a prophecy of deliverance is given. The major theme of the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises made in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Every hope of the Old Testament ultimately points to Jesus. And we saw this last week as we looked at Jesus' genealogy. And we're going to see this theme developed more in the opening chapters of this book. The rest of chapters 1 and 2 are built around five prophecies which Matthew connects to Jesus' birth and early years. Today we're going to look at the first of these five prophecies. And we're going to start by going back to the Old Testament and looking at this prophecy in its original context. And then we're going to see how Jesus' birth ultimately fulfills that prophecy. Now the prophecy we're going to look at today is from Isaiah chapter 7. 
Isaiah chapter 7. And if you've got a Bible, I'd say turn over there right now. And as we go to Isaiah 7, what we're going to see is a situation that happened 730 years before the birth of Jesus. We're in the royal court of the Israelite kingdom of Judah. And this chapter contains a dialogue between God's prophet Isaiah and King Ahaz. Now, Ahaz is a descendant of King David, but Ahaz is an apple who has fallen very far from the tree because the Old Testament tells us that Ahaz was a wicked man. 2 Kings 16 says, He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his own son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Ahaz hated God, and he worshipped demonic idols, and he was so devoted to these demons that he offered his son to them as a human sacrifice. Now, in Isaiah 7, this wicked king finds himself in a lot of trouble. Isaiah 7.1 says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. Ahaz finds himself at war. The two nations north of his kingdom, the kingdom of the northern tribes of Israel and Syria, have formed an alliance against him. And verse 6 tells us why they formed this alliance. Their intention was to go up against Judah and terrify it, let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Israel and Syria mean to throw Ahaz off the throne and put a new king from a new dynasty in his place. Now we might think, well, that's, that's great. Ahaz is evil. So long, right? Not so fast. Because God had made a promise to Ahaz's ancestor David, in 2 Samuel 7, that your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before me. God promised David that his descendants would continue forever and would always have the legal right to rule. And God doesn't go back on his word. God must preserve the lineage of King David. But unbelieving Ahaz doesn't believe God's promise. Isaiah 7.2 says, When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, with the northern tribes of Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They're afraid because they don't know God and they don't trust his word. Now at this point, God intervenes by sending his prophet Isaiah to this wicked king. And Isaiah tells Ahaz, stop being afraid, stop trying to solve your own problems, and trust the Lord. See, Ahaz thinks he can figure it all out. He can solve all of this by playing politics. He's going to invite Assyria, the greatest nation of the world in that day, to come in and invade his area and destroy his enemies. And he thinks that's going to solve all his problems. But God doesn't want him trusting his future to politics or to men. Instead, God says to Ahaz, you trust me, because God is endlessly faithful to his promises. So God tells Ahaz in verse 7, This plan to kick you off the throne will fail. Verse 7, It shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. And as a result of this declaration, God calls upon Ahaz to trust in him. Verse 9, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God says to Ahaz, Trust me, I will deliver you. But God also knew that Ahaz was an evil, hard-hearted man. Faith would not come easily for him. And so God, speaking through Isaiah, offers to perform a miracle to help wicked Ahaz come to faith. Verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. God says to Ahaz, 
to help you trust me, I will perform a miracle. Any miracle of your choosing. You want to see a sign in the heavens? I'll write one. You want me to bring somebody back from the grave, from Sheol? I'll do it. You name it, Ahaz, I'll do it because I want you to trust me. Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. God commands Ahaz, ask for a miracle and I'll do it. And Ahaz says, no thanks, God. Why would he turn this down? Because Ahaz is like a lot of people today. He hates the Lord. He doesn't want anything to do with him. He isn't open to faith, even though his kingdom is in danger, even though his dynasty may fall, even though his idols can't help him. He would rather trust the most evil and treacherous nation in his day to help him than the living God. And maybe today you can relate to Ahaz. Maybe today you, you think, I wish I wasn't here in church. I wish I didn't have to listen to this sermon. I don't care about God or Jesus. I don't want to submit to God's word. I have a better way to live my life. And if that's you, be warned. Because this approach leads to disaster. We're going to see that in a minute. And friend, if you take this approach, then like Ahaz, one day you will find that the idols you have built your life around will be unable to help you when the crisis comes. They cannot deliver you from the true and ultimate problems that define your life and future. Only the Lord can help us. And so we need to humble ourselves and trust Him. But Ahaz wasn't willing to do that. He didn't want to see evidence that God was real because that would require him to repent. And so he says, I don't want to see this sign. Now that would be bad enough. But Ahaz compounds his sin with a further act of false piety and self-righteousness. He says, I won't ask for a miracle because I don't want to put God to the test. Putting God to the test is when people say, God, if you do a miracle for me, then I'll follow you. That's a terrible act of arrogance. Because we don't give God commands. And Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. He's trying to make himself look holy. But this is a farce because this man is a committed idolater. What he's really trying to do is make himself look good and make God look bad. And this makes God very angry. Verse 13, and Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? God is tired of Ahaz's nonsense. And so since Ahaz won't name a miracle for God to perform, God says, fine, I'll pick one. A wonder that will testify against Ahaz's unbelief. A wonder that says, I will fulfill my promise to David and his dynasty, even though this king is an unbeliever. And here we come to the main text uh, in this prophecy, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim, the northern tribes, departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. You say, okay, wow, what, what does this mean? God says, I'm going to perform a wonder, a wonder which is meant for Ahaz and for his whole dynasty, down through the ages, the whole line of David. And what is this sign? The sign refers to a virgin. In Hebrew, this is the term Alma. Alma means something like a maiden, a young unmarried woman of marriageable age. Now, in ancient Israel, every Alma, every young unmarried woman, was legally required to be a virgin or else she would face the death penalty. 
Now, that probably seems foreign to us in our culture because in our culture, the sin of premarital sex is widely practiced. And so a lot of us disconnect the idea of virginity and marriage in our minds today, but that's not how it was in the Old Testament. Young unmarried people were not either virgins or sexually active back then. Young unmarried people were either virgins or they were dead. So this term alma definitely speaks of virgins. And we know that's how Jewish people translated this term or understood this term because in 200 BC, some Jews translated this passage into Greek. And they translated this Hebrew term, Alma, into the Greek term, Parthenos, which is an unambiguous and clear Greek word that means virgin. So the sign is, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son named Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, a few things are said about Emmanuel here. First, Emmanuel's birth is a sign that God will thwart the plans of these invaders who want to kick David's dynasty off the throne. Verse 16 says that by the time Emmanuel is old enough to discern between good and evil, these two invading countries will be vanquished. So Emmanuel is to be a living sign that God will be faithful to maintain the house of David. Second, while Emmanuel is a sign of God's faithfulness to the house of David, his infancy will occur within a bleak context. Verse 15 says he will eat curds and honey. And later in this chapter, in verse 22, Isaiah will say that the Jews will eat curds and honey when they are an oppressed people. So Emmanuel will grow up in the shadow of defeat and oppression. And the cause of that oppression is found in verse 17. Ahaz had rejected God. Ahaz thought politics would save him. Ahaz trusted Assyria. And God says, your plan's going to backfire. Assyria is going to betray you, and they're going to bring ruin upon your country. Friends, just like every other false source of hope and every idol that we trust in instead of the Lord will eventually betray us and ruin us. So the sign of Emmanuel points to two realities. Because of Ahaz's faithlessness, Israel will suffer but because of God's faithfulness, the house of David and the future of Israel will be secure. All right, that's the prophecy. To what does it refer? Well, many scholars think that this prophecy had some sort of partial fulfillment in Isaiah's own day. Isaiah doesn't say that specifically, but this view is commonly held because verses 15 and 16 sound like Isaiah is telling Ahaz that he, Ahaz, should expect to see a child named Emmanuel, who would serve as a visible, living reminder of God's promise to defeat his enemies. And history tells us that those nations were indeed vanquished within 15 years of when Isaiah gave this prophecy. So I think the idea that there's some sort of partial and very limited fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah's own time is probably true. But whatever that partial fulfillment was, was not the ultimate culmination of this prophecy. This prophecy awaited a long, future, ultimate fulfillment. And we know that for three reasons. First, if this prophecy came true in every respect in Isaiah's day, we would expect he would tell us about it in his book, which he doesn't. Second, this prophecy appears within a series of prophecies contained in Isaiah chapter 7 through 11 that anticipate the birth of a wondrous, miraculous child. And in chapter 11 of this book, we're given two time markers that tell us when this miraculous child would be born. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now Jesse was the father of David, so this is a prophecy about the royal house of David. 
And the idea is, there will be a time when the lineage of David seems dead, like a tree stump. And in the middle of what seems to be death, there will be new life, a new king. That description does not resemble the time of Isaiah. In Isaiah's day, the house of David was firmly installed on the throne in Jerusalem. So the wondrous child is not to be born in Isaiah's day, but in the future. Second, in chapter 11, verse 11, we're told that the wondrous child's rule will happen when God regathers Israel and Judah from exile, which in the day of Ahaz, neither one of those things had happened yet. Neither Israel nor Judah had even gone into exile. Judah would not be exiled for another 150 years, much less rescued. And so again, the the birth and the activity of the wondrous child is seen as a far future event from Isaiah's day. It's not going to happen in his own time. Well, when would this miraculous child be born? Matthew's gospel, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us this prophecy was truly fulfilled in the birth of Jesus 730 years after Isaiah. And that's the third reason we know this prophecy's ultimate fulfillment was long after Isaiah's day. So Isaiah 7 is a prophecy that speaks a bit about the problems of Ahaz's day, but which ultimately anticipates the birth of a wondrous child centuries in the future. And that's what we see as we come now to our second point. This prophecy's scandalous ultimate fulfillment. We leave Isaiah's time and we pick up in Matthew chapter 1. Isaiah said Emmanuel would be born in a time of oppression. And from the time of Ahaz's foolish bargain with Assyria, indeed, Israel wound up being oppressed for centuries uh, by different countries. At this point, it's Rome who has Israel under their thumb. And it's a terrible time of oppression. At the same time, Isaiah said that the wondrous child would be born at a moment when the house of David seemed dead like a tree stump. As we begin this book, the house of David isn't ruling over anything. Joseph, who's the rightful king, he's a carpenter. The circumstances at the start of this book fit Isaiah's description perfectly. So let's read chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now Matthew's going to describe the circumstances of the conception and the birth of Jesus. First, because these events line up perfectly with Isaiah 7. And secondly, because Matthew has already said something in this book that requires some clarification. The way he ended his genealogy, which we looked at last week. We look back at the early verses of this chapter. Over 40 times in the early lines of Matthew 1, Matthew says something like this. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. And so on and so on and so on. All these fathers. But when he comes to the end of the genealogy, he breaks the pattern when he comes to Jesus. Matthew 1.15 Mathen was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Matthew does not say Joseph was the father of Jesus. Matthew says Joseph was the husband of Mary, and Mary gave birth to Jesus. Why does Matthew break this pattern? What is the significance of this variation? Matthew owes his readers an answer, and now he gives it as he describes the circumstances of Jesus' birth. Verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. We'll stop there. The context of the birth of Jesus is a betrothal. Now in ancient Israel and many cultures across world history, getting engaged is a really big deal. Now you could say, well, yeah, but getting engaged in our culture is a big deal too. I mean, you get to take the ring selfie and all that stuff. But that's not really a big deal in comparison to how it is in some cultures. 
If you want to get out of an engagement in America, it's not too hard. You give the ring back, there's a little bit of awkwardness, but it, it can be done. We've probably all known somebody who called off an engagement at some point in their life. But in a lot of cultures, getting out of an engagement is a really tough deal because engagement in those cultures is not seen as a heightened form of dating. It is seen as a legally binding contract. And that's how things were in ancient Israel. When a young couple got engaged, usually through an arranged marriage set up by their parents, from the moment the contract was signed, they were legally husband and wife. Now, during the period of the engagement, usually about a year, the husband and wife would not live together. They would not consummate the marriage, but they were still legally spouses. And we see that here in verse 19, where during this period of betrothal, Joseph is called Mary's husband, even though they have not formally wed. And under Jewish law, betrothal could only end either by death or divorce. And it's here that Matthew picks up the story. Joseph, the legal heir to the throne of David, finds himself engaged to Mary in verse 18. And now a complication arises. Verse 18. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph and Mary are engaged, but before they are wed, before their marriage is consummated, it became obvious that Mary was pregnant. Now Matthew tells the, us, the readers, right off the bat, this is a miracle from the Holy Spirit. This is not because Mary did anything improper. But what Matthew tells us Joseph doesn't know. Joseph only hears that his fiancée is pregnant, and he knows he's not the father, and so he draws the only conclusion that anybody could draw. Mary had cheated on him. And with that in mind, verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Usually when we think about these events, we think about them from Mary's perspective. And we get Mary's perspective from the Gospel of Luke. But Matthew presents this from Joseph's perspective. Joseph, we're told, is a just man. This Greek word means righteous. In other words, Joseph belongs to the Lord. He is a believer. And as a believer on that side of the cross, Joseph's faith was demonstrated by his obedience to the law of Moses. And as an observant Jew, this situation of Mary's pregnancy presented two problems. First, as Mary's pregnancy became increasingly obvious, everybody would be talking about her. And if Joseph went through with the marriage under those circumstances, it would look like he was admitting that he was the father, that he had fathered a child out of wedlock, which he had not done. Joseph would wind up looking guilty and expose himself to a lot of shame and scorn in that culture. And he doesn't want to do that because he hasn't done the, the crime, so why should he do the time, as it were? But second, the law of Moses says that adultery is a big deal. Deuteronomy 22 says that a betrothed woman who cheated on her fiancé is liable to the death penalty. Now at this time, because Rome ruled over Israel, the Jews weren't able to carry out their own death penalties, and so it's unlikely that Mary actually would have been killed over this if Joseph had raised a fuss. But an adulterous woman is not a fitting wife for an observant Jew. And there are ancient Jewish documents that indicate that under circumstances like these, the rabbis would have told Joseph, you are obligated to divorce her. And so for these reasons, because Joseph is not guilty, and because he believes Mary has been unfaithful, he concludes that he must divorce her. He must end the betrothal. Now the law of Moses said he could do this in a very public way. He could demand a legal trial 
which would see him exonerated and her condemned. But the law also allowed a more quiet way to handle this. Joseph could privately write a certificate of divorce and present it to Mary with two witnesses, ensuring she didn't have to face the disgrace of a public trial. And Joseph chooses the quiet option, because while Joseph is an observant Jew, while he cares deeply about obeying God's law, he's also a kind man. If a divorce must happen, it doesn't need to be nasty. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, and here we're supposed to, to sit right up in our chairs and pay attention because in one moment this whole story changes on a dime. Verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. God sends an angel to intervene in Joseph's decision because God has some things to say to Joseph before Joseph takes any binding actions he can't undo later. Verse 20, the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So God now speaks through this angel, and he gives Joseph two commands. And he also gives Joseph an explanation for these two commands. And then the angel ties the whole thing together by linking Mary's pregnancy to the prophecy of Isaiah 7. Let's start with the connection to Isaiah 7. Isaiah prophesied that in Alma, a virginal young woman would conceive and bear a son. And that's exactly what has happened. Mary is a virgin. And Matthew insists on this very clearly in the Greek because he quotes here from the Old Greek version, the Old Greek translation of Isaiah, and which rendered Alma as Parthenos, which I already told you is a very clear term in Greek meaning a virgin. A virgin will conceive and a virgin has conceived, not because she lost her virginity, but through a miracle. This pregnancy is the direct result of the work of God. And that makes sense, because remember the context of Isaiah 7. What did God offer King Ahaz? A sign as deep as Sheol, as the grave, or as high as heaven. A shocking, wondrous miracle, something that defies the laws of nature. And a virgin conception certainly fits that bill. Moreover, remember that the sign of the virgin conceiving was not directed only to Ahaz. In Isaiah 7.13, the prophet says this sign was for the entire house of David. And here in Matthew 1, how does the angel address Joseph? Joseph, son of David. See, the angel's making the connection. He says, Joseph, this sign, which was promised so long ago to your dynasty, is going to happen in your day, and it's going to be fulfilled in the most amazing way. A virgin has supernaturally conceived by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, and that virgin happens to be your fiancé, and that means you need to marry her. Because this is part of God's plan for you and for the royal family and for your nation and, in fact, for the whole world. So that's the first command. Now I'm going to stop here for a moment and comment on two troubling trends that I have observed in modern Christianity related to the truth of the virgin conception of Jesus. First, some Christians really get hung up on trying to figure out how exactly this miracle physically occurred. A lot of the explanations I've heard are frankly bizarre and heretical. I uh, know a fellow who's tried to argue that the Holy Spirit turned into a sperm cell and fertilized Mary's egg, making Jesus some sort of 
fusion of the divine and the human, like the demigods of Greek mythology, like Hercules. Okay, that is not what the Bible teaches about Jesus. Jesus is not a mix of the divine and the human. Jesus is fully God and fully man. I've also heard people try to describe the reproductive system of Mary's body in really odd ways, trying to argue that she did not carry Jesus in the same way that other pregnant women carry their babies. This is preposterous and biblically unfounded. It is a category mistake to try to scientifically rationalize the virgin conception because this is a miracle. And miracles are things which are contrary to the laws of nature. So naturalistic descriptions will fail to grasp it. If you want to know what happened, remember that at creation, Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. The Spirit was involved in creation. Psalm 104-30 tells us that the Spirit is involved in giving life to humans. And in connection to these roles, the Spirit executed a creative miracle and allowed Mary to conceive, which we do not need to attempt any scientific defense of or rationalization of. The question is not, can we explain the virgin conception scientifically? We can't. The question is whether a God exists who can contravene the laws of nature miraculously. And friends, there is such a God because he made this universe. One day he will destroy this universe. And in the meantime, he has total power over this universe. And that God can cause a virgin to conceive. So that's one error people run into when we talk about the virgin birth, trying to explain it all in physical ways we can't really understand. The other error is that in recent years, a number of prominent Christian leaders, I use that term loosely, have decided that the virgin birth is embarrassing and unbelievable, and they've tried to distance themselves from it. Rob Bell, who was once a big-time celebrity pastor until he outed himself as a heretic, infamously wrote a book in which he said, what's the big deal if we found out that Jesus had a human father named Larry? He said, it's irrelevant. Virgin birth, we don't need it. Andy Stanley, the pastor of the third largest church in the United States, likewise said, if someone can predict their own death and resurrection, I'm not all that concerned about how they got into the world. Christianity does not hinge on the truth or even the stories about the birth of Jesus. The, the line of reasoning employed here is simple. People have a hard time believing in the virgin birth, because it's contrary to our scientific knowledge and our experience. So let's get rid of the doctrine, or at least let's minimize it into irrelevance. But friends, these men are wrong. The virgin conception and birth of Jesus is highly significant to Christianity. How? Well, for starters, Isaiah 7 told us this miracle was a sign of God's faithfulness to the house of David. Faithfulness of God is important. But more important for our purposes, the virgin birth is a doctrine which impacts every person who has ever lived and which impacts each one of us. And let me explain. First, by talking about what the Bible says about the human condition. In the beginning, in the garden, humanity was created untainted by sin. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, had a choice. They could obey God and live and reign with Him in paradise, or they could disobey God and plunge the creation into ruin. And in their folly, they chose sin. And God had warned Adam in Genesis 2, In the day you eat of the tree of knowledge, you shall surely die. But Adam rebelled. And through his rebellion, he experienced death. Immediately, he suffered spiritual death. He was severed from his connection with God, the author and wellspring of life and goodness. 
Additionally, Adam fell under the curse of physical death. His body began to break down. Eventually, his body died. It was separated from his immaterial soul. And tragically, Adam's choice didn't just impact him. Adam's choice touches every descendant that he would ever have, every person who would ever be born. Genesis 5.1 says, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. God made humanity in his own image. And that's still true after the fall. We've marred the image of God, but it's still there. Genesis 5.3 adds, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. We all now also reflect the image of fallen Adam. And as Adam was a ruined and, ruined and condemned sinner, so we are all born ruined and condemned sinners. That's why David said in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying that the circumstances of his conception were sinful. He's saying that as a human, he's not born with a clean slate. He is born a sinner, as you are and as I am. And not only are we all born as sinners, we're all born under the sentence that Adam earned. Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. All of us are sinful because we share Adam's legacy. And so all of us bear the consequence of that sin. We are all born under the sentence of death. We will each die physically. Ephesians 2 tells us we are all born spiritually dead, cut off from a relationship with God. And if we reach our physical death, still spiritually dead, the book of Revelation says we will die eternally in the lake of fire, we will be cut off from God's presence forever. This is the heritage of Adam. And all of us are in a patrilineal line of descent from Adam. We all, all had a father who had a father who had a father the whole way back to Adam. And as a result, we're all sinners. And that's true of every human except one. It's not true of Jesus. We know that because the Bible says clearly that Jesus is without sin. 2 Corinthians 5 says Jesus is he who knew no sin. 1 Peter 2 says Jesus committed no sin. Hebrews 4 says he has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is sinless. How can that be if every human being is born a sinner? Well, some people have tried to argue that Jesus was sinless because he wasn't really human. They said he only seemed to be human, but he was really only divine. But that's not true. 1 John 4, 2 warns, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And whatever spirit does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Anyone who denies the full humanity of Christ is teaching satanic lies. Jesus is fully and truly human. The only thing the Bible records that is different about Jesus' humanity from our humanity is the manner of his conception. And so Jesus' sinlessness must logically be connected to that difference. And so it seems that the curse of Adam is transmitted patrilineally through fathers. And because Jesus has no human father, he is therefore exempt from the sin nature of fallen Adam. I say, well, that's interesting, but why does it matter whether Jesus is sinless or not? Because of the second command the angel gave Joseph in Matthew 1, that he is to name Mary's son Jesus. A Hebrew boy receives his name in his circumcision. And for God to tell Joseph, you're going to give Jesus his name, means that Joseph is to publicly act as Jesus' father. Functionally, he is to adopt Jesus into his family, the house of David. 
But in addition to God commanding Joseph to adopt Jesus, God also specifically designates the name of his son. The name Jesus is an English rendering of the Greek name Jesus, which translates the Hebrew name Joshua. And the Hebrew name Joshua means Yahweh saves. And the angel says, that must be the name of the Son of God. Why? Because that name reveals the work that this child will perform. The angel says he will save his people from their sins. The idea that the promised child of Isaiah 7 will be a deliverer is not a surprise. Because the prophecy of Isaiah 7 was given in the context of God saying, I will deliver you from your enemies, Israel. But what enemies do God's people really need delivered from? If you ask the Jews in Isaiah's day, they'd say, we need delivered from other nations that want to invade us. If you ask the Jews in Joseph's day, they would say, we need deliverance from Rome. If you ask many American Christians today what we need deliverance from, they would say, we need deliverance from politicians and judges and China and Russia. But God's assessment of our primary need is different from our own. God says our biggest problem is we need to be delivered from sin. Sin is our true and greatest enemy. You know, we're prone to think of people as oppressors who uh, are the real problem, people who can restrict our liberty or people who can threaten our lives. But the Bible says sin's a lot worse than that because the Bible tells us sin is a wicked slave master that owns all of us at birth. John 8, Jesus says, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And sin is a slave master who not only threatens our liberty and our lives, but who threatens to kill us eternally in hell. And so sin is the great problem that each of us has. But friends, Jesus has come to conquer sin. One day the Bible says Jesus will come and overthrow every institution in this world and all the corrupt leaders and all the corrupt institutions that oppose him. But in Jesus' first appearing, he takes on the first and the biggest enemy, which is not nations or people, it's sin. John 8, 36, Jesus says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Galatians 5, 1 says, For freedom, Christ set us free. Jesus has come to set us free, and not with weapons of war. Jesus has set us free because He has become our substitute. The sacrifice who stood in our place and who endured the judgment we deserve. Friends, it is critical in this Christmas season to not only marvel at the miraculous birth of Jesus, but to remember that Jesus did not stay a baby. He grew up and he became a man, a man on a painful and difficult mission. In Matthew 16, Jesus will tell his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and on the third day raised. Why did Jesus have to die? He tells us in Matthew 20, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to be our sacrifice who would obtain our pardon from God. And he came to give his life as a ransom payment to buy our freedom from the slave master's sin. Jesus offered his life in our place on the cross. He took the penalty we deserved. And Jesus died physically. But more than that, 2 Corinthians 5 says, On the cross, Jesus who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Believing, friends, Jesus stood in our place and, and faced the full brunt of the wrath of God, the wrath that we should have suffered. And he took it so that we would never have to face it. And that's why it's so important, friends, that Jesus is sinless. 
Every sacrificial animal in the Old Testament had to be perfect. No blemishes. Any presence of sin in Jesus would have disqualified him from being our sacrifice. More than that, if Jesus had sin, when he died, it would have been because he is guilty. But because Jesus dies without sin, he's dying because someone else is guilty. You and I are guilty. And so, friends, Jesus offers not just to stand in our place. He takes the wrath of God, but even more than that, he offers us an exchange. He takes our sin and he gives us his perfect righteousness so that we can stand before God the Father without fear of condemnation. That is what Jesus has come to do, to deliver us from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And one day when he comes again, he will deliver believers from even the presence of sin. Jesus has come to save his people from our sins, not just Israel, but Gentiles too. We saw that in this book last week. All who believe are Jesus' people. But there's one more thing we need to know about Jesus, which is that according to Isaiah 7, he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, you might say, well, that's not the name Joseph gave the baby. He called him Jesus, not Emmanuel. But the idea that Jesus is Emmanuel is not a statement about his name. It's a statement about who he is. Jesus is fully human. We've insisted on that already. But he is also God who dwells among his people. Now, this idea that Jesus is more than a man is very controversial in our time. But Isaiah had already prophesied of the wondrous child in Isaiah 9, that to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, he's born a human, but he's also God. He's born a child, but he lives forever. And the Gospels tell us repeatedly that Jesus claimed to be God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I and the Father are one in John 10. John 6, I have come down from heaven. And we find the same claims in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says, I forgive sins. And the people who are there with him say, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. That's the point. Jesus is God. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was an institution in, found in God's law. Who is the Lord over God's law? It's Jesus, he says. In Matthew 18, listen to this. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That sort of omnipresence could only be true of God. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, listen to this, all authority in heaven and on earth are given to me. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, that could mean anything less than that Jesus is claiming to be eternal and omnipotent. Jesus clearly claimed to be God in the flesh. And after he died, God the Father raised him back to life, proving that everything Jesus ever said about himself was absolutely true. Jesus is indeed Emmanuel, God with us, God in human flesh. And so we have seen today that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he has come to deliver us from our sin, that he has accomplished this by his substitutionary death and resurrection. And all of that is inextricably connected to Jesus' virgin birth. And so instead of being a quaint myth that modern Christians can sophisticatedly dispense with, we must see that the virgin birth is a critical, theological, foundational truth which we must clutch tightly. To lose the virgin birth is to lose the sinlessness of Jesus, which is to lose Jesus' death as our substitute, which is to lose our hope, consigning each of us and all of us to the fate of dying in our sins and facing God's eternal judgment. 
So we need the virgin birth, which is the ultimate and true fulfillment of Isaiah 7. But we come now to our final point which is that this prophecy and its fulfillment call us to respond in faith to Jesus. Joseph thought he understood what was going on with Mary, and he had formed a kind but a righteous plan to divorce her quietly. But this angel has now revealed the truth. Mary is carrying the promised, miraculous child who will deliver his people from their sins. And the angel has commanded Joseph now, take Mary as your wife despite her pregnancy and adopt Jesus. What will Joseph do? Believing this angelic message would not be easy. If Joseph had not been a righteous man, it would be easy for him to rationalize this away. Oh, well, you know, I was dreaming. Some interesting dream. But come on, Mary's pregnant. I'm not the dad. A virgin birth, really. I'm going to do the safe thing, and I'm going to cut her off. He could have done that. And if he did, he would have protected his own reputation in the community. You know, the Bible tells us the story about Jesus' virgin birth became very widely known in ancient Israel. Years later, in John chapter 8, this story was used against Jesus by his opponents, who chided him by saying, where is your father? They've heard this story, and they laugh at it, just as Jesus' opponents today laugh at it. Joseph would have been exposed to this ridicule for marrying Mary. In his community, everybody would have concluded that either Joseph was Jesus' real father, and this story was just a weak cover-up, or that Joseph was incredibly gullible. Mary cheated on him and got away with it. Either way, Joseph would have suffered a tremendous reputational hit if he obeyed the angel's word. So what did he do? Verse 24, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Despite the cost, Joseph obeys God's word. We see that indeed Joseph is a man of faith. He believes what God has told him and he responds accordingly. He weds Mary. He names and adopts Jesus. And even more than that, we're told he does not consummate the marriage with Mary until after she had given birth. Why? Because the angel said Mary's pregnancy was the fulfillment of Isaiah 7. And Isaiah 7 doesn't just say that a virgin will conceive, it says that a virgin will give birth. And so Joseph saw to it that Mary was still a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. Friends, God spoke to Joseph and disclosed the truth about Jesus, and Joseph responded in faith. And today, God's word has spoken to us, and we have heard the truth about Jesus. And now it is up to us to respond in faith. Many people today think that God will save everyone in the end, or that God will save those who perform many good deeds. But Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one path to God, only one path of salvation. And Ephesians 2 tells us what that is. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. No good work, no charitable act that we perform can commend us to God. Friend, hear this. God has no regard for deeds which we think are good, which are done outside of the context of faith in Jesus. We can be made right with God, and we can have our sin dealt with only by God's grace, only as an unearned gift from Him, which we can never earn. And we receive this gift through faith. What kind of faith? Jesus gives some clarity about this faith in His first sermon back in the Gospel of Mark. 
chapter 1, verse 12, where he said, repent and believe the gospel. To repent means we need to recognize that we are on a path of sin, which is going to lead us to eternal calamity. And we must turn from our lives of sin to Jesus. We must turn from serving ourselves to serving Jesus. We must turn and trust our destiny to Jesus. We must believe that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. We must believe that Jesus has done what is necessary to save his people from their sin through his death and resurrection. And on that basis alone, we must ask him for salvation. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friend, if you have never repented and turned to Christ in faith and God is drawing you right now, I would tell you, you can ask him for forgiveness right where you sit. Or if you want to talk about it more, talk to me after the service. But today, friends, if you've already come to Christ, remember this is what Christmas is all about. Jesus has miraculously been born to free us from the worst adversary we have and to bring us into a glorious and eternal relationship with His Father. And that is a truth we can rejoice in no matter how hard this year has been or how hard this Christmas may be. So as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. So let's pray and thank God together in song for the gift of Jesus.